Okay. Okay. Um, we are uh, entering into Second Samuel today, and um, we're going to, part of our time this morning, as you can see from the handout, is that we're going to do an overview of the chapter. It's going to be real broad, real quick, but I think we need to do an overview. And then we're going to look a little bit at our chapters for today, and then we're going to ask, uh, what does that have to say to us? So um, let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Father, um, we thank you for your word, and, and we thank you for Second um, Samuel. And we thank you, Lord, that um, it's a difficult book, but that you have something to teach us and that there are beautiful things that you have to teach us. And, Lord, we want uh, to ask you to be in our presence today, that you, by your Spirit, will just open our eyes to see the glories of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I ask you that you would be with me, that you would um, let uh, my words be true and clear, that if I say anything unworthy of you, Lord, that you will erase it from the minds of these women. And Lord, most of all, we just pray we will leave here loving Jesus more. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so here's what happened to me. Over the holidays, I reread 2 Samuel. And one of the reasons I did that was I did it, I was reading it as with an eye to teaching. I'm going to, I'll be teaching a few times this semester. And then it just so happens that I'm going to do the wrap up of 2 Samuel. So I just wanted to have this coherent, fresh picture of the whole book of 2 Samuel. So I did that. And um, here's what happened. I, I read it and I just had this surprising response. I felt adrift. Um, in the midst of it, I, I just I felt like I was I was in this ocean, and there was no place where Second Samuel allowed me to really put my um, anchor down. Now I need to tell you I've I've read Second Samuel many times, and I've even taught on Second Samuel, but this time it felt so different to me. This time. I just was off balance in reading it. In fact, I, I thought to myself, Terry, have you ever really read 2 Samuel all the way through at one time? Now, I don't know how many of you all have uh, taken time to just read through 2 Samuel recently all the way through. But if you have not, um, you may be in for a surprise. Because I will tell you that if you are expecting David to become king, and all in all that it's going to go pretty well, you're in for a surprise. And if you're expecting that his road from this point on will have some rough spots in it, but all in all it's going to be pretty good, then if that's what you're anticipating as we travel through Second Samuel, you probably, like me, are going to wonder where to put your anchor down. Now, let me tell you, first of all, part of the problem, of course, is the enormity of the difference in cultures. I mean, after all, this 
Second Samuel was written around 1000 BC. We're 2000 years removed. We ought to expect some differences in our cultures. So, of course, we will do that. And, and we will probably struggle as we continue to, to um, traverse in this culture of war and warriors and deceit and murder and torturous deaths and beheaded corpses and sexual sins of all kinds. We have concubines and multiple marriages and adultery. We have the rape of a brother of his half-sister. And then we will have this, we're going to run into this mother who is puts a cloth on a rock and she stays there day after day to keep the birds of prey off the corpses of her sons. We're going to have a census taken and then we're going to have plagues. And all of these things are going to be in a world that is unfamiliar to us in so many ways. But here's what I want to say. That is the world in which this story took place. That is the terrain upon which Saul and and Samuel and Jonathan and Abner and Joab and Abigail and Bathsheba and David and his sons, that's the terrain they lived in. That is where they walked day by day. That was the air they breathed. So we can't take our culture and put it on theirs. That would make us not understand what's going on. This was their culture. But you see, that isn't the real struggle that we have in reading 2 Samuel. In fact, I think it is, in one sense, it is the very foreign nature of that culture, the very uncivilizedness of that culture, that makes this story at times so beautiful. I think it's these very conditions that makes beauty more beautiful, and it makes faithfulness more compelling. It makes longing more immediate and soulful. And I think it is this culture that we're reading about here is what makes life so desperately precarious. And because of all those things, it makes covenant the pinnacle upon which this story must stand. Without covenant, we will not be able to understand our study of 2 Samuel. Now, when we did our, our, when we did our first lecture on 1 Samuel, the first thing we emphasized in the lecture was covenant. That was the first thing we emphasized, and that was because, what did we do? We talked about Hannah, and what did we have? Hannah was being identified in her culture because she was barren, she was being, she was an outcast. She was being humiliated. She felt as if she was nothing. And, and she became depressed. Her husband was the only one that gave her any meaning at all in the midst of that. And we, and we found her really struggling until that day that she remembered, that she began to remember God's covenant. And that's where she put her anchor down. That is what she began to believe. That is where she found herself living in the promise of the covenant that God had made with Abraham so long ago. And when Hannah prayed, that's where she put her anchor down. Now, I need to tell you that same thing is going to be true as we go into 2 Samuel. Because 
We will talk about that today as the thing that we need to hold on to. And when we close Second Samuel, that is where we're going to have to put our anchor down. That's how we're going to have to understand the ending of Second Samuel. Because the whole suite, not only of First and Second Samuel, but the whole scope of redemptive history, if we do not have those promises, those covenants of God that begin to guide us, we're going to lose our way. Because we will get caught up in, in all kinds of things as we do that. So, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to first do this brief overview, and you have that on your handout. And it's going to be really, really brief, but um, it may help you as we go through some of these things. And um, I want to help remind you as we look at this, some of the truths that may help us get through this confusion and strangeness and dismay in this beautiful and hard book of Second Samuel. So that's what we'll do first, and then we'll look at our lesson. So, um, okay, so here's the very general outline of Second Samuel. Chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 5. This is what we studied today, except I added five verses because those in those five verses, David is finally crowned king of both the northern and southern kingdom. So how did I, I entitled this, this is David learning to be king. These are his first acts as king. This is what we begin to see before he crosses into the threshold of being king. First of Judah, then of the tribes of Israel. And here's what we, I think what we saw today is that we stood back and we, we began watching. And these are the kinds of things and the kinds of people that David is going to have to deal with all through the book of Second Samuel. And we began watching how he handled those situations. And we began to see that, that there is a lot of strangeness in how he handled it, and some of it was confusing, but over and over, David is going to deal with these kinds of situations and these kinds of people. We met Joab today, and Joab is with David all the way through Second Samuel. So we're going to be watching him and, and that relationship. And so we found out a lot about, there, there were just a lot of things introduced in, in these chapters we had today. Well, the next big section is chapter 5, verse 6 through chapter 10. And that ends in, in 19. That's, um, and this is where we find David actually ruling. And honestly, David's ruling in faithfulness here. It's almost all positive. Not all positive, but almost all positive. And in this section of Second Samuel, you just have hope for David. And you think, this is great. This is the king we've been waiting for. This is wonderful. But the big thing in the center of the center of this section is chapter 7. Chapter 7 is, is the pivotal chapter in First and Second Samuel because that is where God makes his covenant with David. Covenant is always the center of all things. Everything before and everything after points to this covenant. Dale Ralph Davis calls this, um, he says, it is at this point that David receives the charter of the kingdom. I love that. It's, it's here because now David, God comes to David 
And he tells him what the kingdom is going to be like. He tells him what the purpose is. He begins to unfold the, the, the purposes of where this is in time and space. Now there's going to be a king, and the kingdom's going to begin to be a kingdom. And so that's what he unfolds. And, and, he, and everything in this begins to define who David is. That covenant begins to tell. And, and this covenant builds upon the Mosaic covenant and upon the Abrahamic covenant. These are all God moving along and telling us and unfolding the things of his heart. Okay, so then um, we come to chapters 11 through 20. And I call this covenant um, discipline. And the subtitle is this, David Learning to Be a Sinner. This char- chapter 11 is the uh, chapter on Bathsheba. Almost everything in these chapters, almost everything in those have a darkness to them. And again, it all has to do with covenant because in this section, David is learning how covenant reaches into the darkness. So, Although there's a lot of darkness, there's a lot of beauty that happens in these passages, a lot of things that we have to learn. Then finally, we have chapters 21 through 24, and I've just called that covenant mystery, mercy, and hope. And what happens here, it seems like it's all over the place. It seems like, oh my goodness, what is happening here? And the, the things that go on in these chapters do not happen in chronological order. Um, they're just, it's almost as if the um, author of Second Samuel felt that there were some things that needed to be added to David's life that we needed to know about, and he took these. Now, there is an order and a pattern to them, but that they were added on at the end. And the only way, these are, there are some really strange things here, the only way we get through these is because of covenant. And covenant makes these passages beautiful. So, why am I going through all of this? The reason that I'm going through this is because I want us to read 2 Samuel the way we are meant to read it. I don't want us, I think this is what happens, I don't want us to put too much weight on that which cannot carry the freight. And that's what we tend to do when we're doing a study like ours. When we're looking at these at these. Um, these passages and we're going deeply into the study of what's going on and that's a good thing and we're and we're learning a lot of things but what can happen is in the midst of that we can tend to put the weight on something we're not supposed to put the weight on we meet as we go through these passages we're going to meet people all over the place we're going to watch them act and react And here's what we're going to begin doing. We're going to find ourselves wondering who is good and who is bad. Should we like Joab? Is he always bad? Is that bad what he did? We're going to find that with Abner. We're going to ask, was it right for David to kill the messenger who came and told him about Saul? Was it right for him to kill the sons of Ramon? What... Those are the kinds of things that we're going to be asking because we're spending time in those and we want to know the answer to those. Those are the black and white things that we tend to want to know. But you see, what happens is we lose sight of the main thing, and the main thing is God. 
And the main thing is God and his ways in the midst of that culture, in the midst of those lives. The main thing in any culture is God. And yet we forget that. Don't we do the same thing in our culture? We, we get lost in the day-to-day of our lives. And we, and we leave God outside of it. And, and we begin thinking about this day and this day. And what am I going to do when we lose sight of God? We can go through the whole day. And our hearts can just be removed from God. And that's why God is so important. That's why covenant is so important, I mean. It, it keeps us tethered. Because covenant unfolds to us what God is doing. Covenant reveals God's heart and what he loves and what he hates. Covenant is what gives us hope and stability and promise when everything around us is seemingly falling apart. Covenant keeps us from getting lost. Covenant shows us where to put the anchor down when we are adrift in an ocean of confusion. And always and truly, covenant always no matter if it was the covenant given to Abraham or the covenant before the foundation of the world or the Mosaic covenant that showed us what sacrifices were or if it's the um, covenant given to David, no matter which of those covenants, it always and ever points to Jesus Christ. You see, that's the most important part of this story, of God's story that we have that David didn't have. Oh, God gave him glimpses. God gave him a promise in that covenant to him. When God unfolded his covenant with David, Jesus is the bedrock. Because David wants to build God a house. And God said, no, David, I will build you a house. And he unfolded for David that that meant he was going to give him a heritage that would far beyond, be far beyond anything he ever imagined. David didn't understand it all, but he knew it was a huge promise. And here's what I want you to see as you watch David in all of 2 Samuel. In all David does, he shows us a God-saturated life. Now, what do I mean by that? Am I saying David lived a perfect life? Goodness, no. We know that didn't happen but he lived a God-defined life. He, li- he learned to live all of his life before God. Read the Psalms. His life is saturated with thoughts of God. God's calling and his promises defined who David was. I think one of the most beautiful things and important things we are going to see about David is how he learns to be a sinner before God. That is what we need to learn. We need to learn that in our lives. Okay, so that's the big map of how we must traverse through this mess that we sometimes find ourselves in, in our passages today. But, um, so, as as we just take a quick glance through some of our passages today... Um, I'm going to just highlight some things that we're going to learn about the king and the kingdom. Okay, so we watch as David learns to be king. And the story, story begins, the king, the anointed king, is about ready to learn of the deaths of Saul 
and Jonathan and of Israel's decimation by the Philistines. And the way that David learns about it is through an opportunistic, excuse me, alien who comes to David and he wants to tell him and he's seeking a reward. And we are going to see that David has wisdom in how he deals with this man who comes to him. And he comes to him and he comes with a mixture of truth and lies, which is the most potent type of, of deceit, I think. And he comes... But David will see through this, and he will reward the man what he deserves. But here's the thing. That's not the focus of this chapter. Chapter 1 seems to be instead focused on grief and sorrow and lament. When David hears the news of the death of Saul and Jonathan, his immediate response is deep sorrow. It is weeping. It is fasting. David reveals something quite surprising. His enemy, who has chased him and threatened him and maligned him and sought his death at every turn, is dead. And David weeps, and David mourns, and David is engulfed in grief. This is David at his best. He lives in a culture of war and killing and death. And this is the environment that he has lived in all of his life. And yet, David is not immune to the loss, the emptiness, the wrongness of death. David doesn't avoid this moment. He embraces it. And even beyond the moment of grieving, he he later writes this, this lament a lament to help people remember Saul and Jonathan. He wants them to remember their lives. He wants them to be able to look back for years and years and years. He wants them to see these two men as heroes in God's kingdom. Now, I'm sure that as David was doing all of this, that there were all kinds of things going on in the midst of this sorrow and grief and lament. But I think this is so important, and I think God wants us to see it, that I love that this king living in this culture of war and death will not accept death without mourning its invasion. He will not let his heart grow used to it. It is as if for this moment, despite all of the history with Saul, for this moment, David says, stop. And he gathers everyone to mourn. And time stops, and grudges are forgotten, and lies are put on hold, and weapons are sheathed, and a king who is waiting to be crowned will be put on hold. How can we not, in the midst of all of that, as we watch David mourning Saul and Jonathan, how can we not be drawn in remembrance to another king who wept at death's invasion? Another king who knew more deeply than David the reason to mourn death. The greater son of David who would meet death and face it, and he would conquer it on our behalf. The greater king who has given us hope that someday there will indeed be no more mourning, nor sorrow, and no more death. But that day is not this day. And we continue to mourn, and mourning is a good thing, and we should mourn. We should mourn in the midst of death, but not as those who have no hope. 
And I am thankful that in an age where we see death depicted on TV every day, and day after day abortions continue to be celebrated and life gets less and less meaningful, I am thankful of David's reminder that life is precious and that death is an enemy and that mourning is the right thing to do, that sin and death are all invaders into God's kingdom. And I am thankful for Jesus, who gives us hope that death has lost its sting and, and it is death has lost its victory and that someday death will be no more. And David, as a king, gives us a taste of that king to come. And then in chapters 2 through 4, David finally becomes king of Judah. But life doesn't become all that much easier for David. As we see what unfolds, we meet the sons of Zariah. Joab, being the eldest, is the one that we will focus on the most. And we also meet Abner. And we are alert as, as we watch David. What will he do? Because David now must be constantly on watch for the power struggle that ensues. In a time when David should be securing more of God's kingdom, he instead has enemies within the gate. We expect Joab to be David's support, he who was his commander of David's army. We expect him to be on David's side. We expect Joab to follow David's orders. But you see, Joab has an agenda of his own. He is loyal to David, yes, unless he finds that that loyalty gets in his way. Joab doesn't care what he must do to see that David is made king. There are no rules in his battle plan. Joab, I think, sees himself as the kingmaker, that he must do it in this way that he has to break through, that he has to see that David is made king. And God is not someone he bothers with day to day. It is whatever it takes for Joab. And Abner, who was the commander of Saul's army, is out for his own glory. He sets up a puppet king and Saul's only son. Abner seems to have no loyalty to Saul's son, Saul's son is a means to an end. He is the front man for the true man of power who is Abner. Is this the look of David's kingdom? Is this what God called David to be? This is beginning to look like Saul's reign, where there is no dependence on God, there's no prayer, there's disorder, there's power, there's self-importance. And as we read, we are left with this sense of confusion and longing. We want David to step in. We want David to stop this. We want David to be the king we're longing for. But once again, we must notice that David will have to learn to deal with such important, arrogant men, all of his rule. It is a wearisome, but it is life in the kingdom. The end of those two men is the one we expected. One of these men must die. They can't both survive. They both want to be on top. And Joab is the one who is the victor. Joab, who will time and time again prove himself to be a man bent on taking the kingdom by storm. As I looked over this mess and 
I was awakened to the fact that this is what happens even today. This is what happens to us when we don't put our anchor down into God's covenant promises. If we seek to take the kingdom by storm by our own methods rather than through prayer and trust and grace and patience, how often in the Christian church do we find the incubator of these kinds of power struggles, of divisions, and of gospel? We act the same way. It's just not as violent as Joab and Abner. And this struck me as a great cause of sorrow. I could so easily judge Abner and Joab, but the sin that still resides in my heart and in your heart, we need to be aware, and we can learn that as we look at these stories. As I thought about David's journey this far and how many days of uncertainty fell between God's promise when he became king and when he became king, I realized that Life is that way no matter what culture we live in. The contours of the journey that God has us on belong to him. And we may meet, we may be in valleys and we may be on mountains. We may be in wonderful relationships. We may bring about the fall of a relationship. Here's what we have to remember is that the covenant encircles those contours and they keep and the covenant keeps us within God's purposes and his promise. How we walk the journey depends on how deeply we trust in God's covenant promise. When we encounter these deep valleys or high mountains, we have to stop and think how we're going to face them. Will we believe in God's promises? and his purposes? Or will we follow our own path? Will we seek to control the outcome? If the covenant was the air that David learned to breathe, if that was what gave him the stability of his days and the truths of his life, how can we who have the fullness of the promise in the true and final king not trust in his promises? If the gospel is the air we breathe, will it and not inform our days and our moments? Not just sometimes, but we need more and more to drink of the gospel every day. The call upon our lives is that our king has established his kingdom. It is certain. And he has given us a purpose. He has left to us to push the boundaries of the, of the kingdom forward. Not as Joab not as Abner, but with our anchors deeply embedded in God's promises and living as those who seek the king's glory and not our own. David lived much of his life in warfare. Sometimes it was foreign enemies and sometimes domestic enemies and sometimes he was his own enemy. That too is the story of our lives. For us, however, our war has been won. But the skirmishes continue. And this war is every bit as real as the wars that David fought. As Ephesians tells us, our battle is not against flesh and blood, though we sometimes try to make it that way. It is not against our brothers and sisters, but it is against the schemes of the devil, the rulers of authority and cosmic power in the present darkness, 
the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And our weapons are spiritual, and they are the only effective weapons. We cannot look at the wrong enemies, which is what we tend to do. Our enemies are spiritual. And God is waiting for us to put our trust, to stand firm, to put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the gospel of peace and take up the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Those are the things that we are to learn about kingdom living. Those are the things that David help us begin to understand Those are the things that we await. And we will use these weapons until the day that Jesus comes again. And then we will begin to understand that the king has finally come. And we can lay all of our weapons down except for those will always be part of our lives. Let me pray for us. Father, um, how easy it is for us to find the darkness in Joab's heart and Abner's heart. But, oh, Lord, would you teach us how to find the darkness in our own hearts? And will you teach us like David that we know where to take it, that we take it to the throne room of grace? And so, Father, we ask that we would be women, that hunger and thirst to know you better, that put our anchor down in your covenant promises that seek to trust you, that have patience, that wait upon your uh, call upon our lives, that trust in your purposes. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.